Hi, welcome back to Students of the Word. So today we discussed 1 John 1-4, which means we actually finished the first paragraph of the whole book. Uh, I was really excited to get to this, and I thought we had a really great discussion, so I hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to Students of the Word. This is session number five, and today we are hoping to finish. We're going to talk about uh, verse four. We're going to hope to finish the first paragraph of First John chapter one. Very exciting. Um, let me start off with uh, a little bit of recap, because it's always really important. It's one of the dangers, obviously, of studying as slowly as we're doing. And I don't apologize for the slowness. This is exactly what I had planned to do. Um, but, um, but, but one thing we have to be very careful of, of course, is that we don't lose sight of the big picture, right? I mean, when you're um, <laughs> people talk about, you know, missing the forest for the trees, um, you can like stop and, and look at, you know, study the leaves so carefully that you forget you're even in a forest, right? Um, and obviously we don't want to do that. So I want to, I'm going to be doing a little bit of kind of recap at the beginning of every episode, I think pretty much, um, because I want to make sure as we approach, you know, the next verse or whatever, we're probably going to average about a verse a week. I think that is, is it's pretty much my goal. It feels like that's working out pretty well so far. So I think that's about the pace we're going to go, but we have to make sure that we are connecting it. And obviously during the course of our discussion, we're going to be doing a lot of interconnection. That is one of the things that John's kind of all about. I mean, the his patterns of repeated language make it almost impossible not to make connections back and forth when we're paying close attention. But um, nevertheless, I, I, I don't want to lose sight of the momentum of what we've been talking about. And I'm also hoping to, um, when we finish talking about verse four, he says with confidence, that um, we, uh, when we get to that point, I want to kind of pause and look back a little bit more over the whole paragraph and what that, you know, sort of, you know, shows us and what we learn from that. So let me start with my little recap. So last week, of course, we got to, the main verb, right? Verse three, where we finally, finally was revealed the main subject and verb of the sentence. And it was kind of a bombshell, right? We got to that main verb, which was proclaim, right? We proclaim to you, but then he didn't proclaim it, You know, it sounded like he was setting up a proclamation that he was making. And then he takes a, a pivot, right? Instead of proclaiming a thing, he instead says, you know, these things that we have seen and heard proclaim we unto you so that, right? And then he gives the reason why he's proclaiming instead of actually making his proclamation. And that reason, of course, was that ye, that you, plural, may have fellowship with us, right? Um, and that I was talking about seemed rather a surprise, right? At least I was a little surprised at the proclamation, you know, instead of proclaiming about God or about Jesus or the incarnation or whatever else, right? Instead, he says, the purpose, the reason for doing this. We're we proclaiming this so that, not so that you may have fellowship with God, but so that you may have fellowship with us. And he tacks on, you know, because our fellowship is with the Father and his son, Jesus Christ, right? Um, that, you know, that thing which sounds like a proclamation, but instead gets added on uh, as like a sort of writer, right? Um, and uh, and of course, I'm not at all meaning to say that the fellowship with the Father and Son is secondary. Um, in a sense, of course, it plainly comes first, 
uh, I mean, he even seems to be assuming it, right? Um, granted that uh, we are in, fel- you know, granted that we are in fellowship with the father uh, and the son, right? I mean, so like that, that, that seems to be uh, primary, objectively speaking, right? But it is not primary in his emphasis, right? It is not what he comes in emphasizing. What he comes in emphasizing is not the fellowship with the father and the son, but the fellowship with, you know, his fellowship with our, their fellowship with him. That is that kind of horizontal fellowship among believers. Uh, that's his primary focus, the primary focus of the sentence, right? Rather than uh, the fellowship with uh, Jesus. So whatever this is, however that works, the fellowship with one another, it's, it's the same thing, right? He uses that he repeats the same word, the relationship that we have with each other and the relationship that we have with the father and his son, Jesus Christ, right? That word koinonia, that fellowship, that communion that we have with each other is it, it's, it's the same. He uses the same word, right? He, those are, those are, that's like same. You know, again, he's repeating the same word, just a couple of words separated uh, from each other. It's extremely emphatic in that way, right? And I think we, we should, you know, let's think about that for a second, right? I mean, they're about the the similarity of those, the kind of reciprocity, in a sense, of those relationships, right? Um, it's not like, I mean, I'm just trying to think of like, you know, metaphors. Uh, how can I, how can I? get this right how can i really understand what this means and of course like the very first thing i thought of was like well it's like marriage right you get married uh to a spouse and then you are sort of you know grafted into that spouse's family right um but it's actually very different from that right and 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 i think two different from that in two ways right first of all because as much as you might be sort of theoretically grafted in I don't know, it's my own experience has never really been that I've been, uh, uh, you know, like my relationship with my mother-in-law is just not the same as my relationship with my mother, nor hers with me, um, as hers with her other siblings. Um, There's still an in-law thing. It's still kind of a legality, uh, and uh, it's not the same. <laughs> Patrick says my in-laws are very much acquaintances. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but here's another thing. Uh, there's, there's yet another way in which, uh, so it's not just that the metaphor kind of works, but doesn't quite get there, because that, 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 that often happens with analogies, right? You make an analogy, and it's kind of like the thing, but it's not the full thing, right? But it's, it's, it's not even that. Uh, the more I thought about, the more I realized that this failed in an even more profound way, um, because the point is not um, the point is not exactly that we establish one relationship with God, and then that establishes a different relationship with, you know, other, like the other people who have their a relationship with God, right? Like my in-laws, right? Um, because howsoever close my relationship with my mother-in-law were, uh, it would not be the same relationship as my relationship with my wife, right? I mean, that I think is amply clear. And, but that nevertheless is exactly, I mean, he uses the same word, right? Um, there's a, there's a, a much greater mutuality. I mean, the kind of fellowship, the kind of connection, the kind of, you know, oneness um, among believers 
he's using the same word to describe that as he uses to describe that relationship between us and uh, between us and God. Right. Um, and so that I find myself falling back as it's probably more advisable in the first place, not on my own enormously clumsy. And in fact, it turns out wholly inapt analogy, but on Paul's image of the body, right. That, seems much more clearly to capture the kind of thing that John seems to be pointing to here in verse three, um, where all are joined together in one body, in one organism, right? Uh, you know, if uh, Jesus is the head of the body, as Paul says, and we are all different members, different organs, different parts of that body, we are all related to each other and to the head in in a sense, in the same way. Now, the, the head's relationship to us is different, right? Um, but in, in one sense, we are all we are all related to, in the sense that we're all part of one organism, right? We are all joined together in one body and related to each other in the same kind of mutual way, right? Um, <clears throat> so that seems to me to be what is suggested, what is, uh, uh, what, and I, I think it's really important that we wrestle. That's why I wanted to come back to this at the beginning today, because like, it's really important that we wrestle with this. I think this is one of those things, uh, and there are going to be a whole lot of them uh, in First John. Uh, things that that John says, things that we may believe, like it, 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 you know, is probably a part of like a doctrinal statement to which we, uh, uh, you know, to which we, you know, which we affirm, but which. I think is often not an actual reality in our lives, right? Um, do we have that? Are do we see ourselves right joined to each other as essentially as we are joined to God? Do we see that reciprocity, right? Koinonia, koinonia, right? We have a fellowship with one another and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Um, and what does that mean? We'll think a little bit more about that, I hope, uh, before the end. Um, <clears throat> one, um, one possible additional reading of this, uh, let me pull up this, I could have the verse in front of me here. <clears throat> um, one, uh, one possible reading of this uh, that I didn't think of last week occurred to me uh, when, I was doing, when I was doing my recap, always at risk of thinking about a recap, is that um, one possible implication of how he constructs the sentence uh, there in verse three is that he sort of is seeing himself as a kind of intermediary, right? Um, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the father and his son, Jesus Christ. That is one could possibly see this sentence as him as a kind of an, inter an intermediary term, right? I want you to have fellowship with, 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 with me. And this brings us back to the us pronoun, right? And we'll come back to that later on today. Um, but let me, for now, knowing that I'm changing it, change it to me just because it'll make the emphasis a little bit clearer of what I'm suggesting right here. Um, that you may have fellowship with me because I, I and, and truly my fellowship is with the father and the son ergo, right? Since a, if a is equal to B and B is equal to C, then a is equal to C. Voila. Right. I mean, that's one 
I, I, I could imagine that is a possible reading of this. Now, um, I, uh, I, my, I don't think that he's sort of elevating himself. I, that I don't think doesn't seem to fit with what he's talking about here. Um, uh, but um, because uh, I mean, it also sort of works. You know, that's the thing about those, uh, you know, the sort of the transitive property business, right? Is that it works? There's the is the commutative property, isn't it? That says if A is equal to B, then B is equal to A, right? In other words, that it goes back the other direction as well. Um, yeah. So I don't. I don't. In one sense, I think that the intermediary thing. I think that there's a reality there. John is aware of the fact that he is the transmitter of the message, right? Um, and even if we go back to verse one. He's the one who touched the word with his hands. They presumably haven't. Most of them, I don't know for sure who they are or if they ever had the chance to, you know, drop by Judea uh, when Jesus was around or what. Um, but presumably there are at least some people uh, that he's talking to who have not, in fact, handled with their hands the word of life, right? even if they have handled with their hands the word of life stuff. But um, so there is a sense in which the apostle, as an apostle, right, is an intermediary, right? I have heard, I have seen, I have handled, and I proclaim and testify, right, um, these things to you. And so that there is that kind of an intermediary sense. Um, but... Uh, but I don't think, in the end, I don't think that this, uh, and, and, and the re- one of the things that makes me come back to this as I was, as I was thinking about verse four, we're going to get one of John's uh, favorite verbs. He's gonna, it's going to be one of the most often repeated verbs uh, in the entire epistle, but it's, um, I, I'm not planning to put it on the word list. Uh, it's interesting, but it's not exactly word list stuff. And that is right, grafo. Um, that is to say, John is drawing attention to his authorship, to his activity in writing this epistle. He does it all the time. He does it very frequently throughout the epistle. Um, and so again, there's that there's that sort of posture of him as a, he knows he is the he is the writer. He is the messenger right here. He is the one proclaiming, um, uh, and will we'll look at several points. Um, this is going to be a thing, his relationship with them um, and what he, uh, what he suggests about his relationship with his readers um, is definitely going to be a thing we're going to come back to many times throughout our discussions of the epistles. And I think that that's going to be very interesting. Um, but um, uh and so that's why I bring up this intermediary thing is that there is a way there's, it is, I think it, it does fit sort of part of the um, part of the, part of the frame. Um, but in conclusion here, fellowship with God, which does seem to come first, that is he seems to presume on the fellowship with the father and his son, Jesus Christ. Indeed, our fellowship is with the father. Um, 
fellowship with God brings us into fellowship with each other. Fellowship with each other brings us into fellowship with God uh, as well. Um, and it's not at all clear that we can have one without the other. Um, Hillary asks a great question. Did we discuss the two? No, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Yeah, let's look at that. Uh, where are we here? Verse four. Okay. Um, uh, I think that's just the also here. So that also the Kai. Um, yes. Uh, that which we have seen and heard. Right. We proclaim Kai to you so that Kai you. So we've got the also also. Uh, we proclaim also so that you also may have fellowship with us is seems to be now i don't know exactly how the kai kai idiom works there like the repetition of the kai the also also and and also also i mean kai is and right and 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 also also apparently um so that's being rendered here um what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us um so that also you may have fellowship with us. Um, is the also kind of attached to the you or is it attached to the have, right? So that you too can have fellowship or that you can have fellowship too, or, you know, you, 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 you are also having, um, uh, right. Okay. So the, the, uh, right. The Kai humes is uh, you too, basically. Okay. So it is kind of attached to the pronoun there. Um, yeah, that how conjunctions function in Greek is something I don't understand at all. So happy to rely upon those who know more than I about that. Okay, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's interesting, Hillary. You know, one of the things that that uh, suggests to me, you too. Well, you too may have fellowship with us. Suggests you're joining others who are having, like there's already people who have fellowship with them right uh and and who is it oh turns out it's the father and the son <laughs> right it's like join us i'm over here with the father and the son right uh welcome um i think that's uh um i, I think that's interesting it could i mean it, it, it he could also be referring to you know the rest of the uh fellowship of believers um but um uh yeah, I mean, that, like, presumably there are others who have heard the message prior, you know, to when they did or whatever. But again, the thing that I would emphasize, it seems clear he's not proclaiming the message as to people who don't know it. And he's going to make that very explicit later on uh, in the epistle. Um, he's not welcoming in, inviting in potential new believers here. That's not his point. That's very clear. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So that you too may have fellowship with us. That's why we proclaim it. Yeah. Sorry. What I'm pausing over there for a second is just trying to understand. Um, he's not just saying, I'm doing this and this outcome is going to happen from it. The outcome being that you too are going to have fellowship with us, but he's explaining, this is, this is 
the purpose is. This is why I'm doing this in the first place, right? Um, this is the the whole reason for for proclaiming. In, in other words, I'm seeing this sentence from both perspectives, right? Like for your, from where you're standing, what's the reason for this? That you may have fellowship with us, right? From where I'm standing, right? What is the purpose of this? Um, why am I proclaiming in the first place? Um, because he's caring about he's caring about them. Yeah, the Hina. In order that the Hina, we're going to come back to the Hina uh, because, in fact, we're going to um, in fact we're going to start with that because we get that very quickly again in verse four, right? These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And scanning over the Greek here for a moment, and these things we write, graphomen, so that hina again, and that's the same conjunction. Hina, the joy of us may be full, and then if we go back, it was the same, just confirming. There it is, hina, so that you also, in that same exact phrase we were just looking at, so that you too may have fellowship with us, right? Um, so he's, he uses the exact same conjunction, exact same construction um, in both of those two verses, right? We proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. See the pattern there? See the repetition there? Anybody else getting a Hebrew poetry vibe here in verse three and four? Is this making anybody else feel kind of psalmish? Because it totally is me, right? Um, this is, I here, oh goodness. I was about to give a massively oversimplified version of Hebrew poetics uh, forms, but I know so little about it that I, I, I feel I'm going to embarrass myself. But um, all I'll say about it, because I, I'm, I am such a noob uh, in studying Hebrew, Hebrew poetry that I don't feel like I can teach about it. But what we see in Hebrew poetry is the essential, like the essential, uh, the, the functional element of Hebrew poetry, like what makes it tick um, is the pattern of repeated structures. And those repeated structures are used in different ways. Right. So, I mean, like I just to, to give a, a quick example, the first one I could think of uh, from one of my favorite Psalms, which is Psalms one right? Um, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, right? Um, The parallel construction of the two things, which are juxtaposed with each other, right? And sometimes they're juxtaposed. um, It's like the same thing, more or less the same sentiment being stated, uh, but being stated in different terms. Sometimes the thing is is reversed sometimes it's said in the same terms but said the opposite of like it's sort of flipped um like so we see this good thing so we don't see the opposite bad thing you see what i mean um but um anyway so the repetition functions in lots of uh in lots of different ways but that basic impulse of sort of stating and then restating and sometimes doing a third thing afterwards um is uh, a very that's that's the like this is the heart it's the heart of Hebrew poetics. Um, it is kind of what makes Hebrew poetry tick, as I understand, um, and uh, certainly we see it all over the place, and not only in poetry. Like it's like for those who grew up memorizing 
Psalms, um, it's like how you think, right? And we can see Jesus thinks that way too. Uh, there are a bunch of times when you can see Jesus using similar kind of constructions uh, in his prose, right? In his prose teachings, um, which are also often a little bit poetic. Um, but do you see what I mean here? Uh, let me um, l- let me reread three and four, but I'm going to skip the writer, the very important writer. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Listen to how the structure is without that. What we have seen and heard, proclaim, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. See what I mean? The two verses seem to me really importantly parallel. Um, and I, I kind of came to this by when I was just like, well, okay, he just said we proclaim to you. And then he said these things we write, right? So like the writing and the proclaiming seem to be obviously parallel, right? So that's where I kind of started. Then I'm like, wait a second, hang on now. Um, um, Yeah, so Stephen, in a sense, the repetition in Hebrew poetry is kind of like rhyming uh, uh, in in European poetry and alliteration uh, in uh, Anglo-Saxon poetry. Yeah, kind of. It's it's complicated um, because of course those are different... uh, what's the repetition thing it's not exactly a metrical tool it kind of is too but there it's 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 more conceptual um it's more conceptual uh it's a le- it's the other two are described rhyme and and alliteration in alliterative poetry um are sort of mechanical tools right? How you shape the sounds um, of the poetry. Um, And it's not exactly the same. The repetition isn't exactly the same. Yeah. Randall says it's like rhyming ideas rather than sounds. Uh, That's a good way to think. I mean, not that they're all always rhyming in exactly the same way, but, but, but yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly that, um, that gap is exactly what I'm trying to point to here. The gap between the, um, uh, the, the poetic stuff that's about sound and the, and the repetition, which is really about how the ideas flow. There are, um, I believe now, again, I don't know Hebrew. My Hebrew is like way worse even than my Greek. Um, but um, uh, when I have heard Psalms read aloud in Hebrew, I feel like you can hear there is a, there is an oral component to those repetitions as well. It does provide a kind of metrical structure, but it's not, um, it's not like rhyme and alliteration in the sense that like it's, it's, it's kind of maintained. It's a, uh, it gives a structure to the entire poem. Um, the entire poem isn't built of those repetitions. Um, they come up with some frequency and in some patterns, I believe. Um, but, uh, but it's not like, again, like, you know, you're reading a line of poetry or like, okay, you know, lines of, because you can hear the rhyme and you can feel the meter, right. Or you can hear the alliteration. Um, like that's how, you know, you're reading poetry, right. Right. You get the H's and you get the M's and you're like, okay, poetry, got it. Tracking. Right. Um, but 
stretches of the Psalms will go by without repetitions, right? So it's not exactly the same in that way. Um, but uh, anyway, so it's, like I say, here's me trying to answer questions about something I know very little about, but, uh, uh, but anyway, anyway, it's, it is, uh, so I say it's, it's, it's more about the ideas than it is about the sound. Okay. Um, I think, um, but, um, let's think about the other half of that, right? If the proclaiming and the writing are parallel here, right? We proclaim to you that you may have fellowship with us. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete, right? Um, the parallel is with the joy being made complete. And I want to come back to the significance of that parallel, because I think that's amazing um, in lots of ways. But first, let's focus on our joy being made complete. Um, there are two concepts here. And I think that it's very important that we notice both of them. There's several things to notice that I think are easy to overlook. Um, one, having joy, right? Uh, chara, right? Chara is the, is the word, right? There it is, chara, joy. That your joy may be uh, complete, uh, like uh, filled up, right? Isn't that what the, like, uh, um, the pleromene means? Mene? Like filled up, right? Um, uh, is my understanding of that word. Um, but um, anyway, so that our joy may be made complete. Notice the, 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 the joy is presupposed, right? Like they have joy. They have joy. Um, it's, uh, he, this is not the introduction of joy, right? It doesn't say these things I write so that like you may experience joy. This is not a, I've got great news for you. There's joy now, right? Before there was not joy, but now there is, is not what he's saying. He presupposes joy, your joy, our joy. We'll get to that in a minute. The joy, right? Um, the joy may be made complete. And of course, it would make sense that they already have the joy if uh, they already have koinonia with the father and the son, as seems to be implied at the end of verse three, right? The emphasis that he makes is on completeness, right? On the completeness, that your joy should be filled up. Um, notice one of the implications of this then, by the way. It is very possible to have incomplete, unfull joy. You may know God. You may, in a sense, have fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ and yet have joy, which is not made complete. You've, you have joy. You can't, I think, have that, right? Have koinonia with the Father and the Son without joy at all, right? But apparently it is possible uh, for your joy not to be made, or for, your, for, for you to have uh, incomplete joy, right? Um, and that, I think, I think that's important. And how do we make that joy complete? 
this is where I go back to the parallelism, right? We proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. We write so that our joy may be made complete. Um, and that's, that's amazing to me. That's amazing to me. This is where the completeness of joy comes from. From, you know, the word of life stuff. Not just from the word of life. Not just from the word of life. Listen to that. But you see what I mean? It's again, that is, do you believe in the incarnation? Jesus was incarnate, right? The word came. The life came. The word of life came, right? Um, yeah. But is your joy complete? What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen, looked at, handled concerning the word of life, about the word of life, that word of life stuff. Um, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us, so that our joy may be made complete. The completeness, you know, we talked last time about, so the word is was made flesh and dwelt among us. What now? Right? What now? What, what happens next? Right? What does that mean for us? What kind, how does that change reality from now on? And this is one of the things that I love about this epistle so much, is that it's one of the things that I in my life I think I've often struggled with. The gap right? That is like, I'm cool with the gospel. I'm cool with the new Jerusalem, right? But there's this, what happens now? That's where we live. Where we live is in between the two. The gospel has come. The fullness of the kingdom has not yet come, right? What now? Where do we live? What do we do? What does it mean? Now, um, we're neither in the one state, we're in this liminal state, right? We're in this boundary zone in between the two. Um, that is in between the time before the gospel, right? The time before the incarnation, uh, the, you know, that the Jesus is coming mattered. It changed things, right? The work has been done. It's happened. And yet the work isn't over. It's still happening it's going to be consummated, right? The marriage with the lamb will be consummated, but what now, right? What happens now? That's, as I say, that's been something I've often struggled with um, over the course of my life. Um, and uh, uh, I am really grateful <laughs> for the fact that John seems to be addressing almost entirely that, right? Um, and, uh, and again, this is just, it's one of the things that I think, you know, I've talked before about how, you know, for me, my, um, for me, my, my heart is sort of less in the spreading of the gospel in the sense of informing people who don't, who don't know, you know, who have not heard about Jesus and more, more there, more in the, we have the gospel. Now what? Right. Cause again, that's all that's, again, that's what's where all of us live. 
right? Um, and where that's, you know, again, what I was moved to kind of this, you know, the, the folks I was moved to address, it was this, it was the what now uh, that I definitely uh, have felt myself moved to address. And as I say, really looking forward to seeing more about what John has to tell us about, about this. Um, oh, that's really interesting. Patrick is saying that uh, according to the, um, the Perseus database, which lists uh, Patrick, if, I, if, I, if I'm understanding Perseus correctly, the Perseus database lists the usage of uh, Greek words like in, you know, recorded texts. Uh, and he says that according to the Perseus database, the word haras, the joy word, is used far more in the New Testament than anywhere else. It's used twice as much in the New Testament as anywhere else in recorded Greek uh, literature. They're much more focused on joy. Uh, in Though, by the way, Patrick, it's not all that many, is it? How many entries do you have? In the new, t- I mean, it's 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 it comes up a tolerable amount, but it's not like uh, agape or something, right? Like uh, fifty nine total, yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot. But it's it's. I found when looking it up, it came up less often than I expected. Almost, it's a really important note. Um, fifty nine is a lot, though, but of course, the New Testament is also a lot. Uh, it's pretty big. So if you think about that, like. Uh, you know, average number of uh, references to joy per book in the New Testament. Um, it's that's the number that was like sort of fewer than I, I uh, felt in a sense, if you see what I mean. Um, okay. Anyway, back to the parallelism then for a second. The parallelism suggests a connection, not necessarily a causal connection between our fellowship with each other, and our joy being made complete. Now, I, I, I want to resist just linking those causally. I'm not saying there isn't a causal link, but I'm not saying that the parallel mandates that. Um, I don't think we can look at the parallel and say, therefore, he's saying our joy won't be made complete unless we have fellowship with each other. Like, or like the purpose of our having fellowship with each other is that it should then make our joy be full. The two of them are parallel with each other. Um, I would say the same thing in a sense about both. I was saying that his reference to our joy being made complete shows, proves that it's possible to have incomplete joy. Um, You can have joy, but a joy which is not complete. So too, I think it is possible not to have fellowship with one another. Else, why would he be making that a priority? Right, so that you too may have fellowship with us. This is I'm doing it so that you may have fellowship with us. In other words, you don't necessarily already, or you might not automatically. Right? Um, <clears throat> there's a difference. I talked about the body of Christ, and there's a sense in which that's simply a reality. Right? We are connected with each other. Paul's language there seems pretty clear about that. Um, uh, that we are. A part of the same body with each other. You don't get a vote, right? You don't get to vote who's in and who's out. You don't get to choose whether or not you're going to join. Like if you are in fellowship with the father and his son, Jesus Christ, you are in fellowship with the rest of the body as well. That is not, I do, I don't believe that that is escapable. However, um, there seems to be something just as you can have incomplete joy, 
I think you can have incomplete fellowship too. Um, just because you might in fact have this kind of relation, this body relationship, right? Body part relationship, uh, this organism, organism relationship doesn't necessarily mean that you're walking in that. Um, and, uh, that's going to be one of the things that he's I'm emphasizing this. I think it's explicit in verse four and it's only the reference to completeness, right? Which of course points out the uh, incompleteness. Um, It was only that that made me start thinking in these terms about verse three. And when I started doing that, I sort of realized, yeah, actually this is what he's, he's going to be talking about this throughout the epistle. Um, It's no new message he's going to be giving them, but there are going to be lots of places where he's saying, let's make this complete. Let's actually think this through. I want you to realize what all of this means so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and his son, Jesus Christ. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, let's um, let's get to the yeah. So um, now, uh, hey yeah, I'm not. I want to make sure I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Hey yeah, um, knowing the gospel brings joy. Yes, I think so. I think so. Um, they have received the gospel message, and so they have joy. But he's writing to them so that their joy, our joy, your joy, our joy, may be made complete. Um, So yes, it does seem there's, it's, there are a lot of things so I'm being trying, I'm being cautious here in how I say these things. And soon I'm going to stop talking about this because I'm peeking ahead and it's not fair. We're not there yet. We'll see it as we go on. But there are lots of places where John is going to say some very black and white things, right? Uh, he's a, he'll say a lot of all or nothing stuff in this epistle. It's the all or nothing stuff. I think that makes people really uncomfortable with first John very often, right? I was going to say lots of all or nothing stuff, lots of, uh, uh, of kind of um, um, is going to establish lots of dichotomies, right? Lots, lots of binaries, either this or that. Um, but at the same time, and so that would make you think if you're thinking in those terms, like, okay, so if you have the gospel, you have joy, you either have joy or you don't have joy. Right. But we can see here, no, 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 you can have joy, but that joy not be full. Right. So at the same time that John is going to be talking about, some pretty black and white binaries, light and darkness, that kind of thing. Um, He's the premise, his premise as he's beginning here is that it's not automatic necessarily, right? That is just because you believe the good news, right? Just because you believe in the word of life doesn't necessarily mean that your joy may be made complete. That's why he's writing so that their joy may be made complete. 
um, it doesn't happen automatically necessarily. Um, uh, yes, Stephen, I do think that. Um, we should keep in mind that he's not necessarily talking about salvation, um, but about completeness of joy and fellowship. Yes, I think that, um, I think it's pretty clear, and I think he will make it explicit later on in the epistle, that he is talking, that he is assuming that the people he's writing to are saved, right? It's not a question. He's not talking to unbelievers at any point. He's not addressing unbelievers at any point um, in this letter. And I don't think that any of what he's saying is intended to convince anybody to become a believer who is not a believer. Um, I, it's, I mean, I'm not saying that it mightn't have that, you know, like that, a, a, you know, a, someone who doesn't believe mightn't, uh, you know, read this epistle and become a believer. I'm not, I'm not I, you know, who knows? But what I'm saying is I don't think that that's his intended audience. Um, uh, so, yes, I think that. Um, and again, this is, again, what I feel. Because to make it even more personal, I was talking about that gap, right? The gap between the incarnation and the new Jerusalem, this what now that we live in, um, have been living in for 2000 years, right? But, um, but to speak also more personally about my own life, right? Um, within each one of our own lives, we also have a parallel moment right? Between when we become believers, right? Between, between baptism, right? Between when we accept and between when we are glorified, right? Someday I will know even as I am known, right? Uh, and someday I will know even as I am known. And at one point I didn't believe, but in between there's this, now what? I'm a believer now, right? I, I, I believe in the gospel. I have the promises of God. And yet I've got a lot of life to live, right? I mean, the decades of my life, for me, it's been decades, right? That have stretched between when I believed and to when I shall know even as I am known. Um, are long, just as those, you know, millennia of the world have been long, right? Um, and um, I, I have, I, as as I, I mean, as I said in the very first session, this is why I'm doing this because I have felt in my own life I have experienced so little teaching that has really been targeted there. Um, I've spent most of my adult Christian life listening to sermons that were designed to convince people to become believers um, because that was the understanding of the Great Commission. Um, I, that, I don't believe that's what the Great Commission says. Um, that's part of it. It's an important part of it, but it's not the only part of it. Um, anyway, but anyway, the, the point is, John is addressing that. So I do think that it's important for us to recall um, he's not talk when he's talking about stuff that needs to happen, like your joy being made complete. He's not talking about like, if you only accept Jesus and, and uh, you know, accept him as your King, then 
your joy will be made complete. No, 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 no. You have. That's why you, you have joy because you have accepted Jesus, but, but your joy is, it's not yet complete. Right. And that's where, uh, John had my attention. I was like, no, please tell me more that this, this is what I want to know. This is what I want to know. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh man, Hillary, you're right. Hillary's talked about, um, spending a lot of time angsting over some of the, the dichotomies and black and white statements, uh, in first John. Oh man. Like I I'm telling you, I'm convinced this is why, like, there are so few Bible studies on the episode of first John, you know, in like, uh, I let's just say my college, uh, Christian fellowship never chose first John as a, an epistle to study. Um, it makes people pretty uncomfortable. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, so, um, so this is what, uh, is what we're doing here together. Um, uh, and this is, I believe what John is talking about. So it is important. Like we get so used to thinking in those terms, um, so much Christian teaching, modern Christian teaching, at least is focused on that moment of conversion that we're kind of used to using that almost as a kind of, uh, like frame or filter, right. For any kind of Bible teaching. Right. When, when, when we're talking, when, 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 when it's, when we hear, you know, a Bible author talking about a change, right. Advocating a change, like this will happen to you. We tend automatically to attach it to the conversion moment, because that's what we spend almost all of our time thinking about. Right. Um, But it's, so it's going to be important, Stephen, I think at at many points to keep in mind. Um, That's not, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the making complete um, that happens afterwards. Um, and I think that that's pretty exciting. And Tim, I totally agree with you. Uh, believing is a process, not a moment. That's absolutely true. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it, is, it is a becoming. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. I want to talk about pronouns. From because I've been I've been I've from since last week I've been promising to come back and talk about the pronouns, um, and many of you will know why I've been saving this for uh, for verse four because check this out. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. We got two pronouns here: the uh, the verb right we we write, which is first person plural verb, and our joy. So we get one proper pronoun. And one verb conjugation, right? The verb conjugation we write is first person plural. And then one legit pronoun itself, our joy, right? The joy of us might be complete, but not all of your translations might have that, right? Many of, most of the modern ones do, but um, we go, hang on, I'm I prepared verse five just in case we get there. But um, if you look at the King James, for instance, and these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Um, There is an actual, um, uh, uh, there is actual um, differences in manuscripts here. Some manuscripts have uh, you, the joy of you, some of it have the have some of them have the joy of us. Um, there is a textual variant here, um, and 
my understanding from uh, people who know far more about this than I is that it's, you know, scholars, biblical scholars have generally accepted the fact that our is the correct reading, right? That the, 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 you know, it's hard whenever you come across this and whenever you come across manuscript variants, um, there's a whole bunch of ways in which manuscript variants can sometimes happen. And you have to draw conclusions based. It's not just a question of like, which one is older necessarily. Um, Sometimes that can help, but there there are lots of complicated ways in which you can try to figure out what is the best evidence to suggest what, you know, the the proper or original reading um, of the manuscript uh, 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 should be. But the uh, commonly accepted modern reading is our. What I'm really interested in is the variant here, because uh, I think this is I think that the error is is really fun here. Um, here's why I think the variant is fun. I think it's fun because so one way this is only one way, but one way in which errors like this get into manuscripts is you have to remember that. Um, manuscripts have to be written by hand, hence the name, right? So when you're copying, copying manuscripts, like you've got a person, right? Who's copying. Uh, And they sometimes make mistakes, right? Now, sometimes they make random mistakes, but actually, usually they're pretty careful, right? Um, And usually their mistakes are not random. Um, that is sometimes they like, they'll do a word that's very similar, right? Um, I mean, I don't just like say like there's, you know, one word, like they don't like the, you know, one manuscript uh, says lion, right? And so they're copying their manuscript and they say, you know, uh, like goatee instead. Like they don't, you don't just make a, you don't just put something random down, right? You might put, another word that is very like it, right? Maybe you changed it in your head, right? A word that sounds like it or a word that's, that's almost like that, you know, it's shaped like it uh, or whatever. Um, sometimes, uh, uh, yeah, and as Timothy is pointing out, the, uh, the words are very similar. Um, the of us and of you words are very similar uh, in Greek. Um, uh, so uh, that's, that's a, a place where it often comes sometimes you a variant creeps in when you have an activist scribe because remember the scribe knows that the thing that he's copying like the physical piece of paper over here that or you know or papyrus or whatever it is right the document over here that he's copying was itself copied by somebody else who was doing his job before right um and so sometimes if you've got scribes whose job is to produce like mass produce. I mean, if you're part of like a, a sort of a printing press, right. Uh, you know, a pre-printing press, printing press, where you've got a bunch of people producing copies, um, you know, so that you can produce a bunch of copies so they can be distributed to, to multiple people um, or multiple places. You, you might be, who knows, you might be copying the work of, you know, somebody else. So anyway, whatever, you know, that somebody else wrote this, right. So sometimes you have an activist scribe who says, Hmm. I think that must be a mistake. I think that must be a mistake. And because they know how, I mean, nobody knows better than the scribe, how scribal errors can sometimes happen, right? So be like, oh, hmm, they, um, they must have meant this. 
And so sometimes you can see uh, that there are, uh, uh, th- this sometimes happens. There's, there's, there's evidence of this kind of thing in, um, uh, in medieval manuscript history, for sure. Uh, so um, uh, anyway, the, um, uh, here's what I like about this variant. It's very close of you, of us, right? Very, very small. It's like one letter difference, right? So that's uh, so, what so Tim's telling me here. Um, you have a scribe who says, wait a second, look at the shape of this, right? We have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father. These things we write so that your joy may be made complete. That makes more sense, doesn't it? Right? I mean, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. We write so that your joy may be made complete. Right? Clearly. Clearly. I mean, that seems the sense of it, doesn't it? It seems to fit the pattern of what we see in, in, in you know, with verse three and four, especially if you're, you know, catching the parallelism between verse three and four, right? Um, you might be like, yeah, I, I, you, clearly you, right? So even if the manuscript you're copying, it's possible you could just make a slip, right? You just, you know, write your in, instead of our one letter difference, right? Um, you just make a mistake. It's possible. It's just, it's also possible it's not a mistake. It's possible you're like, no, wait, hang on. That doesn't make sense. These things we write that our joy may be made complete. What your own joy? Well, no, hang on. Like it's not like self gratification. It's not about self gratification. You're proclaiming to us so that you may have fellowship with us. We write so that your joy may be made complete. That makes more sense. That makes more sense. And it it kind of like does in a sense make more sense, right? It follows the pattern of verse three and four. Um. But uh, I love the hour. I love the hour. Um, I am cheerful to, I'm, I'm delighted uh, in the, this, uh, uh, I'm delighted to agree with, uh, with uh, well, I, I'm delighted that modern scholarship agrees with the reading I really like, uh, because I think that the hour there is, is, is a beautiful thing. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Um, What is the parallelism? Our joy may be made complete is paralleled with you having fellowship with us, right? We have the you and us in verse three. We don't have the you and us. I think we don't have the you and us on purpose in verse four, right? You and us and then our in verse four. Because remember, that's what the whole point of verse three is, that the you and the us shall have fellowship together, shall be joined, right? That you and we shall become an us, right? That's the purpose of the proclamation. And then in verse four, he says, we write these things so that our joy and that, um, and I've been, you know, I've been talking about the inclusive or exclusive we. Uh, especially back in verse one, we were talking about this, remember? Um, and it doesn't sound like an inclusive we, um, that he's including his readers, I mean, in the we 
uh, at the beginning there, especially when we get into, by the time we get into verse three and we've got, uh, um, you know, we have seen, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. That seems clearly exclusive, right? There's the we over here and there's the you over there. Um, I said that I felt that he was being inclusive with the we all, that there's, there's at least like an overlay in which he's being implicitly inclusive in the we from the beginning. Um, even though I acknowledge there's, a, there's another way in which it doesn't make sense. There's, I think there's a, there's a tension there. But verse four now, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Um, I'm, I'm ready to fight with anybody. Well, I wouldn't fight because we have fellowship one with another. Um, but I'm ready to maintain <laughs> to fight in fellowship uh, over the inclusiveness of the hour there of that. I, I, I think that's extremely important. In fact, um, if the hour is the correct reading, I'm inclined to say something as extreme as the inclusiveness of that hour in the fourth verse uh, is like the culmination of the whole paragraph. Our joy may be complete. This is the, why, why is he writing so that our joy, the, the ourness, right? The togetherness, the koinonia, like that, 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 that all of the koinonia is all rolled up together. The koinonia of us with each other is rolled up in the hour joy and the completion of our joy is the completion of the koinonia among us, between us and God. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and it, Alex is just asking, is the completeness bound up uh, in including the audience in the joy? Yeah, I really think it is. I really think it is. Um, I don't think the sentence actually works. If he said like these things we write so that my joy may be made complete. Very frankly, I'm just doing this because that's what makes me happy. Right. Um, you no, know, that wouldn't work. Right. Um, nor do I think it is simply for your sake, right? So that you guys over there may have, may have joy. Um, uh, yeah, Alex says, perhaps incomplete joy is joy that I have and you don't, in a sense. Yeah. Or, but, uh, but Alex, I don't even think that because I think that his joy would be incomplete unless their joy is complete too, right? I mean, the, it's part of the filling up, part of the completion, right? Um, uh, it isn't just that um, his joy is only made perfect by them having joy, right? By, by them having fellowship or whatever. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, Sarah, I plan to do that. So I was going to say, yeah, uh, hang on a second, Sarah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back. To that. Let, let me, let me finish this and then I'll come back to that. I'll come back to that. Okay. So the hour joy, I think that the inclusiveness of the hour in that sentence is essential to the meaning, not only of that verse, but of this entire paragraph. Uh, again, I feel like that's what it's building up to. Our joy may be made complete. This, this, is, um, uh, this, is, what's, this is what we do. Right? This, what now? 
what now is our joy uh, maybe made complete, right? Um, our joy may be made complete because we have fellowship with one another. And our fellowship is with the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. Um, this is what then sends me spinning back to verse one, right? And to asking myself, who's the we from the beginning? We ask this at the very beginning, at the very start, right? Why is he saying we from the beginning? Is it just a, a convention like the royal we, a convention of the kind you know, the sort of convention that the royal we is, where one really means a singular person, but for reasons of formality or convention is speaking of that one person as a plural person, right? And we were saying, no, there doesn't seem to be that kind of a convention. We wouldn't see clear evidence of that kind of a convention, a royal we-esque convention. It's possible that he is speaking on behalf of the other apostles, um, in spirit, as I believe most of them to be dead by the time this is written. Um, it's possible, it's possible that he is doing that. Um, Tim, I wonder if the we includes writer apostles hmm, and the father and son, golly. suppose I can't rule it out, you know, based on this paragraph. Um, but it doesn't make much sense, um, especially in verse one. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, it's all from the point of view of those who have received proof of the truth of things, right? Um, yeah, anyway, anyway, um, but here's the other thing. And this, Sarah, I'm coming back to the point that you were just making. Um, Sarah's pointing out that he uses, I, I mentioned before that I write, you know, write is going to be a, a, a popular verb uh, in this epistle. He's usually going to do it in the singular. He doesn't, the other reason not to see this as a mere kind of convention, which he's just, he means I, but he's saying we, conventionally, like, you know, a newspaper editor might, or like a queen might, right? Um, the, my primary reason to disbelieve that it is that sort of convention is that he's going to switch to I when, when he talks about writing. I write, I write, grapho. He's going to speak in the first person singular lots of times. Um, in fact, the majority of these times, I think we write is unusual, in fact. So the beginning of verse four here, these things we write, that's weird. There's a weirdness there. Um, it is not how he's going to talk about it through most of the epistle. Um, yeah, Alex points out if you include second and third John, the I write is even more of a pattern. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, normally, he is going to use first person singular when he's talking about writing, as makes sense, as there really is only one person holding the stylus or the pen, right? Uh, so, um, uh, you know, it's weird that he says we write. It's unusual. 
it's a variation from his own pattern. Now it's hard because we haven't seen that pattern established yet, but we'll see it. And we'll, you know, we can talk about it a little bit more as we see that um, his own persona, as I say, his persona and his relationship with his readers, something he's going to emphasize quite a bit. Um, but um, he will speak in the singular a lot over the course of the epistle. Um, and uh, yeah, that he's 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 going to speak in this uh, in the singular a lot in the course of the epistle. Why is he speaking in the plural here? Not just in verse four, where he's writing in the plural, we are writing, but also in first in the first verse, who's the we, right? Um, and increasingly, I have a hard time believing that he's writing from the collective perspective of like speaking on behalf of the other apostles. I don't think that's logically unlikely at all. Um, but I do find it not to fit with how he talks through most of the rest of the epistle. And so as we're thinking about this um, message, right? What he's saying in these first two sentences the second of which is much shorter than the first, right? What he's saying in these two sentences um, is, I think he's playing with the pronouns on purpose. I think that the question we were asking from our first discussion, you know, from session two, right? Who, who's we? We have heard, we have seen, um, we have looked at, we have touched with our hands. Who, who's we? Who's we? I think we're supposed to be asking that, right? I think that he's, um, we have seen, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. Um, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. I think that his pronouns, we've got the we and we've got the us and it just becomes the our and then in, in my ear, it's hard not to, like we, there's a way and there's a sense in which the we, I think, is inclusive all the way through. We have heard, we have, uh, that he's like uh, enacting the proclamation grammatically through the first paragraph. Um, uh, and I think we can see how that inclusiveness starts to creep back in, right? Um, okay. So I'm, you know, a first century Christian in Ephesus, right? Uh, I didn't, in fact, handle Jesus with my hands. I did not touch the risen Lord. Um, but isn't there a sense in which I can say, in which John can say, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked at, and touched with our hands concerning the word of life? Is there a sense in which that's true? Yeah, there is. If we are in fellowship together, right? Um, if I touch something with my hands or see something with my eyes, my kidneys don't touch it themselves, right? But we, the body, that complex we, which is one thing and yet many together, right? The body, the fellowship of believers, 
joined in fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We have heard and seen and looked at and touched with our hands the word of life. I wasn't there, right? But I am joined with those who have. Um, This is a mystery, right? As Paul might say. Um, But that kind of, it's that overlay of mystery that I start to hear when I come back to the, at first it just sounds like either, he must be either using a convention or speaking on behalf of the apostles. Like, or, you know, like he's representing, a you know, hey, shout out from all of us over here. It, it, it sounds like that at first, right? But then when by the time I get to verse four and circle back, I'm like, actually, I think maybe not. I think I'm hearing more than that. Which means, of course, that we're even involved by implication in the proclamation to us, right? It's all, it's all, it's all connected. Even the obviously exclusive we's right? We proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us, right? Those are the two obvious, like there's we over here and there's you over there, right? And yet we are, we are even in a sense, I think, involved with that. Um, Because of course, his proclamation is our proclamation as well, right? I mean, like that is we, um, the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, right? Um, that's not just their job, right? That's our job to, we have seen and bear witness and proclaim the eternal life. This is what happens when the life, the Zoe is revealed, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Now, keep in mind, I'm not turning away from what we were talking about, about the difference between the word of life and the word of life stuff in verse one, right? There is also that other sense in which that, that other kind of justification for the inclusive we, right? We have heard, we have seen, we have looked at and touched with our hands um, concerning the word of life, the word of life stuff, right? That which came next, right? The eternal life the life that was manifested, um, that they have all seen. Um, The life, the Zoe, the eternal Zoe, right? Which is the, which is of the word, right? Um, Which is the consequence, right? Of, which is the gift, as we will be told later on. Um, They've all, heard, seen, looked at, and handled that as well, right? In, you know, so here using his own eyewitness credentials, his own in-person, firsthand relationship with Jesus as a model, as a parallel to their own in-person, first-person interactions with the Word of Life stuff, right? Okay, Um, I want to, so I'm not going to move on to verse five because we're almost done, but I do want to kind of challenge myself here and where I want to, what I want to challenge myself with is this is the part of things where I am least practiced 
I'm, you know, a literature teacher by trade, right? That's what I do by training and by trade. It's what I do. I'm a professor. Uh, I, st what I don't do a lot of any of, frankly, in my normal teaching is personal application, right? Uh, and I want to challenge myself here. Um, it's easy for me to get into a, a zone, right? Where I'm, we're doing, we're doing literary analysis, right? We're looking at, and we're, you know, we're digging deep and we're tying things together and we're seeing patterns and drawing conclusions and it's fantastic. Um, but of course, as I say, I'm not used to then turning and saying, so what does this mean for us? What does this mean for me? Right. And not to say that I never do that myself, but I certainly never do it in my teaching. And I don't want to lose sight of that. I think it's really important here. Right. Um, so let's go back and kind of connect these concepts together. The word of life stuff. As I said, Jesus came, the word became flesh, life was manifested. Now what? What does this mean for us, for you and me? Um, eternal life has been revealed to us. And I certainly don't think he's talking about the future when we die. You know, we talked, you know, I talked about like, there's that time before conversion, right? There's that time before, you know, we are joined um, with in fellowship with God and in fellowship with each other. And then there's the time of perfection later on when he's talking about eternal life. I do not at all believe he is talking about that time. of. I think he is talking about the now the, what happens in between right? Um, we have fellowship with the Father and with his son, King Jesus, uh, and we have fellowship with each other, and not just joy, but we can have fullness of joy, and that fullness of joy seems to be connected with um, the fellowship with each other and with the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. Um, and notice how all of that is grounded in this clear evidence, that pattern that he keeps doing, we have heard, seen, looked at, touched. We have seen, testify, and proclaim, right? Um, there's all this forensic language, especially testify and touched with our hands, right? Handled. Um, there's, we have reason, right? We have evidence for these things. It's grounded. All this stuff is grounded in personal experience. My application, my challenge, I guess, that I would say here is, are, are we, do we believe that we can live in fullness of joy? Are we, are we ready for that? Do we believe that we can have full, that our joy can be made complete here and now, not, not Sunday, not when we die now that we could walk out into present tense fullness of joy, um, may be made complete. It's present tense. It's subjunctive mood right? It's conditional, like we write these things so that this might happen, right? That's the subjunctive mood. Um, but it's present tense, right? It's present tense. Our joy may be made complete. Are we ready for our joy to be made complete? Um, are we willing to be in fellowship with one another? To really accept that that's an inescapable part of our fellowship with God? Um, and that it correlates with fullness of joy. 
Um, yeah, Sarah says the whole epistle should be subtitled how or how to be confident in Christ. Yes, confidence. Oh man, that's going to be such an important concept uh, later on in this epistle. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. That's um, there are a lot of inhibitions that we have against this. Um, and I think, and I believe that John is, has started to tell us and is going to tell us more that we have too many inhibitions that we tend, we're good at saying I'm only a work in progress. And of course that's perfectly true. Um, but Jesus is not a work in progress, nor are his promises um, only something that will someday come true. Um, if we believe what we believe, are we willing to walk what we believe? Now, it's funny, in my tradition, where I've come from, whenever I start talking like that, willing to walk what you believe, I immediately you know, in, in, in my tradition, I'm immediately starting to think about like, uh, you know, when you're facing opposition, are you willing to put Jesus first above other things? And that's obviously involved, right? But sometimes I think that what, I think that the modern church seems to me to be actually better. Okay. Yeah. Actually, now that I contemplate the sentence I was about to utter, I think it's even more true than I was than I was thinking. I think that it's quite clear, <laughs> I'll make it stronger, that the modern church is much better at defying the world than it is at living in fellowship. Defiance of the world, standing up for the truth, right? Believing in the promises. That's good. But what are the promises? The promise here is that our joy may be made complete, right? That our, where John says our joy will be made complete if we're in fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and with each other. Uh, do we step into that? Do we do that? If we, as a church, prioritized if we as people just think yourself in your own life right if you prioritized fellowship with others more as much as standing up for the truth what would that look like what would that look like i i was chiding myself because i was i i i started saying remember that i was ready to fight with anybody who disagreed with me in verse four except that's me falling into the trap a trap I've fallen into so many times before in my life, right? And that's the kind of irony, right? The kind of irony in this whole thing. Stand to stand for this truth means not fighting other people about this truth. If you fight other people, I mean, imagine fighting with somebody about fellowship, right? <laughs> Somebody else says that, like, 
they have a different understanding of what it means to be in fellowship with one another. And I'm like, no, dog, got it. <laughs> we should be in fellowship with one another. And I'm going to smack you if you disagree. Seriously, how can you even do that? Where can you even go? Um, yeah, Sarah, I agree. Sarah Jameson says true fellowship comes with a great deal of humility. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, Stephen, exactly. Stephen says, it's not my fault if I don't have fellowship. It's the other believer's fault for not being right as I define it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, exactly. It's so easy. It's so easy. Um, yeah. John says, I've been working in church for 20 plus years and I can confirm that people will definitely fight about fellowship. Yeah. No, I, I know it. I see that. Um, uh, yeah. And hey, you're absolutely right. Um, she's, she's reminded of the double commandment of love. Love God and your neighbor. Um, both are needed. They can't be separated. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, all of the law and the prophets are in those two statements together. Right. Um, and um, anyway, but even joy, even joy, I'll stop in a minute, but even the joy part, um, when I talk about things that are hard, like promises that are hard for us to step into steps of leaps of faith that are challenging for us to make or ways in which we, um, um, ways in which we often uh, focus more on uh, what I believe most of us at the time genuinely believe to be humble, right? Like, okay, I, I get the work in progress thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a work in progress. The, the process of sanctification is long. I have a long way to go. No doubt you do, right? Um, but um, what are you saying? What are you believing in yourself? What, what, what image of yourself are you invested in, right? Um, do you believe that your joy may be made complete? That you can have complete joy, full, that your joy can be full up, right? That we can have partial joy, we all know from experience, right? We've all tasted that, I think. I have to imagine. I mean, I don't know, maybe for some of you haven't, but I know I have, right? We've all tasted the joy. Those of us who are Christians have all tasted the joy that comes with belief, right? That comes with that relationship. But um, incomplete joy, right? But how long after you came to be a believer did you start thinking, well, is this it? Right? Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're going to come back, Tim, to koinonia, uh, the word that is being translated fellowship here. We've been talking about communion as well. Uh, Tim, I'm not going to be talking about Paul's usage of the term. Um, I'm, tr I'm going to be, try to be as strict as I can about building a Johannine vocabulary, trying to understand how he's using these terms within this context. Um, and um, uh, that, uh, and we'll see, he's going to come back to it soon. Not often, but soon. Um, we'll get it. Uh, in the next few verses. Um, so, uh, so we'll see. Yeah. Hey, is saying that um, St. Francis, um, uh, St. Francis had, uh, had 
said that, that he had joy as the main virtue of his order of friars. Yeah, yeah. Um, if his friars were not joyful, he sent them to pray because they could not, how could they not be joyful if their relationship with God was as it should? Yeah, I agree. At, at joy, um, joy, completeness of joy, it is essential. It should be, it is, it is attainable. It is attainable. And it's not just about feelings. You know what I mean? Well, this is hard. Um, that would need a, a deeper study of the word hara, the word joy, um, which we're not going to have time for, mostly because um, John doesn't use it much. It's not a major word in his epistle here. So we're not going to be spending a lot of time with the concept of joy because um, uh, he doesn't develop it much in this epistle here. But um, anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. All right. So, and remember, John hasn't even started getting up in our business yet, right? Like this is, this is nothing, this is nothing compared to how much John's going to get up in our business. And so I'm, I'm trying at the beginning to challenge myself at, at the very least at the end of every paragraph, um, you know, when he's going to, when he's starting to transition into a new thought, um, I want to make sure that we're stopping and thinking, just thinking about application. What does this mean? What does this mean for us? Um, and I encourage you go to the go to the Slack channel um, and you know think about share what what is it that you find challenging here? What in your life um, do you think is um, is um, most uh, uh, you, you know did, what does this kind of resonate with? I'd really like to talk about that more. Um, so yeah, as I say, I'm trying to discipline myself to make sure that I stop and do the application thing because it's not normally part of my teaching pattern. All right, I've kept you guys late today. I apologize for that. I am going to be away for the next three weeks. So we won't have our next session will actually be on April 10th, Sunday, April 10th. Um, uh, so uh, I'll, I'll be here then. Um, and uh, I look forward to connecting with you guys again then. Um, probably not the next week as that's Easter over here. So um, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, my calendar, um, so I'll probably be doing family stuff that day. But anyway, I'll be back on the 10th. I'll be back on the 10th. Um, and I'll be traveling until then. Uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, stay in touch uh, on our Slack discussion. Um, send me an email. Uh, use the contact form on the webpage if you want to be invited still. If you're not into the Slack and you want to be on an invitation, send me a message through the contact form, and I'd be happy to bring you in. All right. Thanks very much, everybody. And I'll see you guys in a few weeks. Bye now. Okay, thanks everybody for joining me. So for those of you who are listening more or less synchronously, uh, we'll be back in a little less than a month at the beginning of April. And uh, tune in next time for uh, the beginning of the second paragraph. And when we actually get to what John says is the message that he actually received. So maybe a real proclamation will occur next time. That'll be exciting. All right, thanks guys. Bye.